As Latter-day Saint leaders, we face very difficult conversations that put us at risk of saying the wrong thing that can do more harm than good. Many of these conversations relate to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Have you had a fellow ward member come out to you about their LGBT identity? Have you had LGBT neighbors in your ward and you just don't know what to say to them, so you just ignore them? Have you wrestled with balancing love for your fellow man while still respecting the doctrines of the restored gospel? Personally, I've struggled with all those experiences. This is why Leading Saints is putting together the LGBT Saints Virtual Summit, where we will learn from 20 plus individuals who all have a unique perspective or an expertise in the LGBT Latter-day Saint experience. It's free to attend, so don't miss it. To learn all about the details, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org LGBT. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org LGBT. We hope you will join us so that we can all learn together. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Frankum with the Leading Saints podcast. I'm the host around here. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints, we are a nonprofit 501c3 where we have a mission to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And the way we do that is through various methods, one of those being this podcast. We also have a a website you should visit at leadingsaints.org. Make sure you're following us on all the socials, right? Instagram, Facebook, at Leading Saints will get you to the right place. And we're just glad you're here. Glad that someone shared this link with you to this episode or however, maybe Google brought you here. Bless you, Google. We're just glad you're here. Now, in this episode, we talk with Brad Agel. Brad is a professor at the Marriott School of Management at BYU, a professor of ethics and leadership, to be more specific. He's also taught at the University of Pittsburgh and just has a lot of experience in the world of ethics. And you may be wondering, okay, it's a leadership podcast. I guess ethics is sort of related, but ethics is boring. Well, this episode will prove to you that ethics is not boring, and it's something that we deal with, especially in church leadership callings in ways that you may not be aware. Brad Agel actually wrote the book, The Business Ethics Field Guide, which uh, I have a copy here. He was kind enough to offer it to me, signed it and everything. Really nice. Anyways, we talk about different ethical dilemmas that church leaders run into. And you may think, oh, come on. I mean, ethical dilemmas aren't that prominent in church leadership, but they they are. And, and Brad's going to walk us through some different scenarios where these ethical dilemmas arise more often than you may expect, and how do we go about them? Really fascinating discussion. I think you will enjoy it. So here is my interview with Brad Agel, the author of the Business Ethics Field Guide and professor at Brigham Young University. Today I am on uh, in Provo, Utah, the BYU campus with Brad Agel. How are you, Brad? I'm doing terrific. It's great to be with you, Kurt. Yeah. So we, you are a professor here. In, in what department? Give us your old classifications and what brings you here on most typical, you know, years of school? Yeah. So I've been at BYU for the last 11 years. I am the George W. Romney Endowed Professor in the George W. Romney Institute of Public Service and Ethics. So my primary teaching area is business ethics. I spent 17 years at the University of Pittsburgh before coming to BYU. And so I kind of lead some of the ethics efforts here in the Marriott School and at BYU. Yeah. So do most business majors, they have to take some type of ethics class from you or others in the department? All the business students have to take a business ethics class that's required in all programs. But then there's also public service majors that maybe come through here? So our department is sort of a strange mix. Okay. Its primary purpose is to actually provide a master's of public administration. So we have a number of master of public administration students and executive master of public administration students. And we provide that whole program. And then we also provide the service of teaching all the ethics classes throughout the Marriott school. Yeah. Awesome. So I first became familiar with you with, uh, you've done some speaking and work with the BYU management society and obviously their, their mission is very closely tied to ethics being the, uh, moral and ethical leadership. I mean, they want to promote moral and ethical leadership around the world. So you've, been a good fit there, right? I've been involved for a long time. I actually started the Pittsburgh chapter of the BYU oh, wow. Management Society while I was still living there. And I've been on the board of the BYU Management Society since I've been here and I'm in charge of curriculum because it obviously is a very close fit to what yeah. I do. Yeah. So, and I was intrigued by inviting you on to the podcast because 
you know, we get called into these callings and typically, you know, you call a new bishop or leafside president. And generally speaking, you know, you ask the temple recommend questions. And so you think there's a lot of ethics involved in things, but ethics isn't just uh, being a good boy scout or not. It, there's some dilemmas when ethical situations are put before us and, and you've written books on that and so forth. So where do we even begin to understand your field of work, which led to some books that you've written? Sure. So I've um, been teaching business ethics now for 32 years. And we like to think of ethics as black and white, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And there is some of that. There's sure. clearly there's clearly a lot of things that are very clear in terms of their good or bad. Unfortunately, the world is not that simple. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. there are also lots of areas where it's very gray. And so trying to figure out how to be a good person, how to do the right thing when the, the values conflict, right? They're positive values, but when they conflict, well, now what do I do? I've got to prioritize them some, time, some way, and that can be very difficult to do. So I've been teaching executive MBAs for just over 20 years. And executive MBAs, of course, they're working professionals. So unlike undergrads who are just kind of trying to figure out what the world means, these folks are actually out in the world, they're practicing managers, and they're coming up against these various challenges. And so in teaching them, I've been trying to figure out how to, how to help them to, in an everyday basis, practical basis, how do you deal with it when these values conflict? And so there are classic tools that we have from philosophy, et cetera, and we teach those tools to them. But I've also learned that sometimes those are still too esoteric, too philosophical, mm-hmm. that the students are asking me for more practical advice. Right. And I had the fortune of teaching executive MBAs while I was at the University of Pittsburgh in all three of our programs, in Pittsburgh itself for North America, in Sao Paulo for students from throughout South America, and in uh, Prague for students throughout Eastern and Western Europe. And the one thing that all students had to do, their first assignment was to write up in about two pages some ethical dilemma that they were dealing with. Mm-hmm. How do I deal with this challenge? So I've read thousands of thousands of these dilemmas. Yeah. And remind me that your book is... E- so it's called The Ethics. Business Ethics Field Guide. Okay, gotcha. And and in there, you've, you've basically through your research, you've come down, you've narrowed it down to 13 types of ethical dilemmas that the average individual is going to face in their professional life or in their life in general, right? Exactly. I started over the years, I started to hear themes that would come up again yeah. and again and again. It was like, okay, this is the same kind of type of dilemma I've seen before or, and, and so I started coming up with sort of practical guidance for this particular kind of ethical dilemma. And right after I got to BYU, one of my colleagues, Aaron Miller said, well, how many of those fundamental dilemmas are there? Hmm. I said, well, I don't know. He's like, seriously, no one's done the research to figure out what are the <laughs> fundamental ethical dilemmas people face in business I said, no, believe it or not, they haven't. So what we did is we then took hundreds of these ethical dilemmas and we went through and did qualitative research where essentially read a dilemma and say, what's the fundamental dilemma this person's facing? Okay, there's one. Read the next one. What's the fundamental dilemma? And going through that process, at the end of the process, we said, well, there are basically 13 fundamental dilemmas. Nice. Lucky number 13, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, you know, there's always judgment in that. <laughs> <laughs> right. so. You got to find one more to make it 14. But, yeah. Uh, so, and I'm curious, so I have the list in front of me. So the first one is standing up to power. Second, made a promise and the world has changed. Intervention, conflict of interest, suspicions without enough evidence, playing dirty, skirting the rules, disassemblance, loyalty, sacrificing personal values, unfair advantage, repair, and showing mercy. So I'm curious, obviously, it'd be a long podcast if we dived into all <laughs> right. 13 of these in the context of being a church leader, but I'm intrigued, like, where do we start to maybe understand some of these ethical dilemmas and then in the context of the church? What comes to mind first that you see most often? So. As I was thinking about us as coming together today, I was thinking about some of these dilemmas where I feel like my church experience and my church teaching has helped me to actually deal with some of these dilemmas. Yeah, you'd hope so, right? I mean, you, you would hope, religion right? helps with ethics. You'd exactly. Hope, right? <laughs> right. And we're also a lay church, so we actually get a lot of experience in yeah. addition to just the teaching. And as I thought about it, I thought, well, gosh, you know, repair. Repair is when you've done something wrong or someone in your organization has done something wrong. How do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. Well, gosh, repair is basically repentance. Yeah. It's like, I've been trained really well in repentance in my life. You know, you got to recognize what you did wrong. You've got to, you know, ask for forgiveness what you've got to, from what you did. You need to provide restitution if you can, mm-hmm. and then, you know, resolve never to do it again. That's a really good formula for personal repentance 
It's also really good formula if you're a manager, if you do something wrong or someone in your organization does something wrong. Mm -hmm. You would be surprised how often in organizations people don't do all those steps. In fact, it's the norm that people don't (laughs) do all those steps. And this isn't necessarily tied to a sin all the time, right? They just maybe make a managerial mistake or... Right. You did something wrong. When we talk about ethics, it's essentially... Ethics is about where your actions cause harm in some way. Yeah. It may be intentional. It may not be intentional, but somehow you harmed other people. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you want to try to make it, you want to try to make yeah. it right. And there is this really wonderful formula of how that works. Yeah. And, and so repair, it seems like one, maybe an ethical dilemma. We, we sort of understand a little more. Uh, correct. As church members, we've been trained really well in this. And that's actually one of the advantages of LDS folks in organizational life is We've been trained really well in how to do that. Another one we've been trained pretty well in, particularly those who have served in bishoprics or in stake presidencies, is the showing mercy Mm. dilemma. That's where someone has done something wrong. They have harmed you or your organization in some way. How do you respond? Is it appropriate to show mercy? So in the business world, we say, well, does that person need to be fired? Or do they just need to have some kind of reprimand? Does it need to be public? These are the kinds of questions we ask. Well, anybody who sat in a church membership council, what we used to refer to as a disciplinary council, Mm. knows that there's a lot of instructions. What used to be handbook one had many pages on all the factors that get considered when making this kind of decision. And I've found in my own working life that thinking about those factors that we ask about in church membership services are very applicable and yeah. very helpful when you're trying to make those decisions in organizational life. Yeah. And that mercy concept, I mean, a lot of times I feel like most leaders sum up their leadership ethics into, well, I'm just going to serve as the Savior did and, you know, do my best to, to be kind and, and uh, you know, hopefully stimulate repentance and, and show mercy, right? But sometimes that's too vague as far as the application of it, right? Yeah. Well, one of the purposes of church membership services is to ensure that the church is protected, mm-hmm. that the good name of the church is protected, and that innocent victims are protected. So yeah, maybe I've got someone who's been involved in pedophilia. If I just say, oh, brother, you know, that's fine. You know, yeah, on mer- the we side have, of mercy. We within. have mercy, you know, <laughs> go back to your primary calling. You yeah, know. but not going to work. That's probably not a good idea, right? <laughs> yeah. So we have to balance where do we have to, you know, have strong discipline? Where can we be merciful? So that's an area where my church experience has really helped. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some other of these dilemmas where, no, I don't think it's been particularly helpful. So a couple of examples of that are, number one, conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Conflict of interest, I will tell you, is of the 13 ethical dilemmas is the one that most people have the, the most difficulty getting their heads around. Mm. Because it's a situation where you are in two different roles. Say, in the church, you're a Relief Society president, and at work, you're a salesperson. Well, in normal situations, as a salesperson, you can, you can call on you know, just about anyone you want to, to try to sell to them. What happens if you're the Relief Society president and now you're going to co-call on women who are in business positions as their Relief Society president? Right. The fundamental notion of conflict of interest is that certain actions under certain circumstances are fine, which under different circumstances, all of a sudden are no longer fine. And we like to think that we set that aside, right? That uh, I, maybe I'm a real estate agent and I'm also the bishop and uh, yeah, I'd love to help you. And of course we sort of, hey, if I'm going to sell a house, I might as well give the commission to the bishop. You know, he's a great guy. But then you get into the nitty gritty of these transactions and it, it's sometimes hard to set aside the fact that he's the bishop or, you know, it's hard to fire your bishop, you know, if you really need to. Correct. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so we're not particularly well trained in the church of how to, how to think about conflict or, of interest or how to deal with conflict of interest. Yeah. yeah. A second one is you make a promise and then the world changes. Mm-hmm. We teach in, in church that you should keep your promises. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, for heaven's sakes, we're, we're a church of covenants, right? We believe in keeping covenants. Yeah, and be a man so, of your word as well, it, right? Like Exactly. So, Kurt, I know you've been a bishop. Yeah. So you're the bishop and you promise your 16-year-old daughter that you're going to take her out shopping to get her prom dress. And she's all excited. It's a Thursday evening. And then you get a call from one of the one of the brothers in your ward and said, my wife just took a whole bunch of 
medicine, attempting suicide. She's being transported to the hospital right now. Help, right? Like, what do I do? What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, and these are real situations. I mean, I'm, especially when I remember moments where I would be leaving the house and my wife would ask like, oh, where are you going or what's going on? And I'd be like, I just have to go. I'm sorry. Right. Because there's right. some confidential information that I can't share or what's going on. And so, you know, I think my wife got to a place where she was okay with that, but it, it's, that's some friction, especially when children are involved and they're looking forward to for dad to, this evening with dad to go out on the town and shop or whatever. That can cause some some dilemmas for sure. Exactly. So we're taught to keep our promises, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about how do I prioritize yeah. when I've got two promises and all of a sudden they're in conflict. Yeah. And and I'm curious, like, as I've reflected back on my time as a bishop and, and, and other callings where near the end, I was figuring this out where I was very much more proactive in giving like my, my counselor's permission to say, you know, to be if you can't make it to a meeting one night, you don't ever have to give me an excuse. You just say, I'm not coming. And you have that permission to do that. Right. So is a lot of it just sort of in, in how we lead those that, that are under our jurisdiction, making sure that they have permission to deal with these dilemmas and, and make a tough choice at times. Yeah. I think, but as part of our job, all church leaders are teachers. Yeah. And so part of our job is to teach them. Mm -hmm. And some, to some degree, we need to talk about these things. When would it be appropriate to say, no, Bishop, <laughs> yeah. I've got, you know, I've got, I've got a higher priority than that. Or as you said, sometimes you just have the permission to say, nope, I just can't do that. Right. So I think to some degree, we need to help people understand, you know, where are those boundaries? Because we're not talking about it today, but you know that I, I, I also have done another project where mm-hmm. for 30 years I've been studying the leadership of bishops yeah. and have it's a future podcast with you. Future podcast. We're teasing that. Yeah, exactly. When the project's done, right? Yeah, the project's <laughs> done. The book's written, just dealing with uh, trying to figure out how to get it published at this point. Awesome. So, but in, in that research, I mean, we find where bishops get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it creates really big problems in their family and among their, in, in their marriage and in their, with their kids. And so we've got to get it right. And yeah. sometimes we're not really good at figuring out how to prioritize those things. Yeah. And I don't know if that spills over to another of the 13 dilemmas, but as far as like sometimes the bishop gets it wrong or sometimes the inspired leader gets it wrong in, in various contexts. Right. And sometimes that's hard to wrestle with for members because I like, well, no, this man's called of God or this woman's was set apart and, you know, and called to this position. Like those type of mistakes shouldn't happen. And, and this is sort of a dilemma that we, we deal with that, we're, we're searching for those ethics. We want that consistency, but there's oftentimes hard to find. It's tough to be in a church where everyone's not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't found one that has all <laughs> right? the perfect people, but. Right. And it's yeah. tough to be in a church where our leaders who we sustain and support are imperfect. Yeah. And so one of the dilemmas we haven't talked about yet is the intervention dilemma. Hmm. And you can, might think about that as the council together dilemma. We have this dynamic going where we have a clear hierarchy and we're supposed to take directions from those who have been called to serve as our leaders and we sustain them and we believe that and that's perfectly appropriate and we should do that. At the same time, we've also been counseled to counsel together. So we're supposed to provide counsel. And I think it's pretty well known in the church that some, even the Quorum of the Twelve have some pretty lively discussions right. about yeah. some issues in the church. And so we've got to try to figure out, well, how do we balance that? I sustain my leaders with, I need to counsel with them and help them in their decision-making. Yeah, And that can be tricky in terms of knowing when to say, okay, yep, the priesthood leader or the relief, you know, I should say, I was going to say, or relief society relief leaders. Now we have a better understanding. Relief society leaders are also priesthood leaders. Mm-hmm. When we say, you know, they've received the revelation. I'm going to sustain it versus when should I push back? And when should I say, you know, I think that's wrong. And I think we need to be doing this. I told you I'd share a few stories. Yeah, no, the stories are great. So I had this intervention not too long after I was called as a bishop back in uh, 2002. We were, it was a brand new ward and we were going to build a new stake center for this ward. And generally the stake president is the ecclesiastical leader who coordinates with the church facilities people and the general contractor in in building the buildings. Well, in this case, 
The stake president lived about 40 miles away from the state where the stake center was going to be built. And I lived across the street and it was going to be for my ward. And so the stake president delegated that to me, said, Brad, you you deal with the the, the facilities folks and general contractor. Makes sense. Makes makes a lot of sense. And I knew the township people. And so I was probably the right person to do this. And so that was all great. And we got the new plans for the new building. And the, the church hires a local architect to make sure that the plans work in terms of the specifications of the city and all those kinds of uh-huh. things and works with the general contractor. And I remember one of our first meetings, the local architect said, you know, this plan doesn't make sense. In general, it's fine, but I don't understand why you would have the kitchen right next to the bishop's office right across from the chapel when you want your kitchen to be down the hall across from the cultural center. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And he said, yeah. And you know, we really ought to switch because the young women's room is down there. We could just switch the kitchen in the young women's room. And I said, oh yeah, that, that does seem to make sense. And so the next time I was the stake president, I proposed that to him and he said, oh, well, no, you know, these plans come from the folks in Salt Lake City, the facilities department. They know what they're doing. They've done this a time or two. You They've, think you exactly <laughs> right. They've done this a time or they know what they're doing. So we're just gonna, you know, go with what they've got. Okay. So my next bishopric meeting, I share this with my bishopric and and they said, No, 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 no. This doesn't make any sense at all. And so I did a little more investigation and found out that we were the second of this type of building. There'd only been one of these. It was a new design for a small stake center. Mm-hmm. And we were only going to be the second one. So I said, I found out who was the bishop of the first building. So I called him up and I shared this with him. And he said, oh, yeah, you definitely make that change. <laughs> That's a terrible <laughs> design we have. And we've already had to replace the carpet twice down the hall because we had, you know, grape or, you know, some kind of cherry Kool-Aid that got spilled as it was going all the way down the hall, taking the juice to the cultural hall. Yeah. Yeah. You should definitely make the switch. Okay. So next time I was with the stake presidency, I sort of proposed it again. This time I had talked to the architect and I said, but how much would it cost to make the switch? And he said, well, we'd have to redraw the drawing. So it probably cost about $1,500. Okay. So I went to stake presidency and I proposed it. And one of the counselors said, you know, $1,500, you know, Bishop, think how much $1,500 would mean to the saints in Africa. And I understand that, but I'm also thinking, you know, this is a multi-million dollar building and I think we want to get it right. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. want to be penny foolish or, or, or penny, penny wise and pound foolish. So I said, okay, stake presidency, that's what you want to do. All right. Well, the next, I, Took that back to my bishopric. They said, okay, we need to talk about this in ward council. <laughs> so I talked about it at ward council. My ward council said, bishop, you need to go back to them. And I said, well, you remember what happened with Joe Smith when he went back to the third time? <laughs> right. So I'm not sure that's a good idea. And they said, bishop, stake presidency is not the Lord. And this is the first time the ward council is coming back to the stake presidency. Okay. So I went to the stake presidency and said, the ward council has asked me to bring this back to you again. Well, at that time, they then decided to allow you warm down. <laughs> I must have worn him down. You know, the unjust judge, I wore, you know, the pet- right. petitioner to the unjust judge wore him down and they said, okay. So we did make the switch. And in the end, interesting enough, because of various things, it ended up not costing an extra $1,500. Actually saved about $500. Oh, that's great. And, you know, say obviously, obviously saved future costs. Yeah. But I will tell you that it's easy to tell a story now. And by the way, this is a wonderful stake presidency. I love all yeah. three of them and they're fine servants. And Yeah. Um, and, and that's the thing to really emphasize. And it's not like you had this tyrant in the stake president's no, office. I mean, and these all. are, and I love that situation because it's very relatable. Maybe not, you know, not everybody's involved in a new building, you know, construction, but these are just everyday things where we have a different perspective on things. It's, you know, you're thinking, how far do I push, you know, and, and do I go back a third time? And, and so they're all good, well-intentioned people that are involved in these ethical dilemmas. It's not that you have the one person who wants to embezzle money from you know this and he's pushing it on you. Like, no, no, I can't do that. But these are just good intentioned people trying to do their best, right? Correct. This was not at all a story of good guys and bad guys. Yeah. No, yeah. this is a story of good guys trying to do the right thing. Yeah. You know, how that dance goes with the authority versus counseling. Yeah. So in that, in that story, I mean, if somebody is facing a similar story, 
or conflict with leaders in, in the bureaucracy or whatever. I mean, what are the applicable steps or thought process they go through to help them make sure that they are, they're not just, you know, being bowled over by authority. Right. In the business ethics field guide for each of these 13 dilemmas, we provide examples of the dilemma. Mm-hmm. And we also provide some questions that help a person process that particular dilemma. Okay. So I'll share with, share with you some of the questions okay. that uh, we ask ourselves in the dilemma. And interestingly enough that we're doing this on the fly. I have not looked at my, I've not thought about this dilemma and looked at these questions. We're putting your book to the test here. We right? are. We'll see if they were really applicable or not in nice. a church setting when right. this was meant for a business setting. Love it. While I'm at it, I'll just tell you two other things we do in each chapter is we also suggest some pitfalls, mm. things that if you're in this dilemma, you need to be careful about because here's some common missteps. And then the other thing we do is we also provide some instruction on how you can plan ahead for these dilemmas. What are some actions you could take before you're ever in the situation that will help you once you're in the situation. Okay. So some of the questions to ask in an intervention dilemma. Number one, are you the right person to intervene? So sometimes you may very well be the right person, but sometimes maybe you're not the right person. Maybe there's actually someone who would be a better person to bring it to the fore. And so to identify an intervention problem, there's intervention dilemma. There's some type of issue going on, a problem that you feel like, I think I may need to intervene. Correct. So we have two that are similar. One is uh, standing up to power. Standing up to power is where someone in a power position relative to you, a boss or a client, is telling you or asking you to do something you think is unethical. Yeah. And you've got to stand up to them and, uh-huh. and deal with that somehow. Gotcha. Well, there's, Inter- there wasn't anything unethical about this. It was just like, man, this would really Intervention. Help. Well, you know, as I said, ethics is about where harm is done to people. Mm. You think about we're expending you know, sacred funds. We don't want to spend them unwisely. And we don't want to create situations where, you know, someone's going to feel really badly because they spilled juice all the way yeah. down the And it's hall. inconvenient. And, yeah. yeah and they know right. that they cost the church lots of money. And so there's a concept we talk about in ethics uh, that we refer to as moral intensity. Believe it or not, all decisions have some level of ethicality to them, but some we don't label as ethical issues because the moral intensity is not particularly high. So for example, you know, what color should I paint this room? Most people would say yellow or green. Well, that's not a moral decision. There's no ethics in that. Well, the reality is there are probably some pigments that are, you know, that are more environmentally friendly. There may Some be, will go out of style very quickly, right? Or correct. You don't want a 1970s room. <laughs> right. And you're going to have to repaint yeah. again. We're going to use sacred funds at BYU in this conference room we're in, you know, yeah. to repaint it in three years instead of six. You know, it may be that there's a color that is offensive to some group or, you know, but in general, we say, well, that's a more, that's a low moral intensity decision. Mm-hmm. You know, whether or not you give somebody the death penalty. That's a pretty high moral intensity, right? Yeah. right? You want to get that, get that right. Make sure you got the right guy and right. So exactly. So there are differences, but all decisions have some moral content to them. The one we were just talking about, you wouldn't say it's high in moral intensity, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, there is some moral content to that. There's a decision that's being made and it, it could have harmful effects if it's not handled correctly, if the right decision is not made. So intervention is the dilemma where it's not necessarily someone in an authority position telling you that you've got to do a certain thing, but it's a position where you see something in the organization or in your interactions with those you're working with where you say, you know, that ought to be different. We ought to change that in some way. So I would refer to this as an intervention decision. You know, it wasn't like they were telling me I had to do this. This was just kind of the plan, et cetera. But I thought, no, this doesn't look right. We really ought to, we really ought to change this. We already fixed this for the better. Yeah. And so is there, because I'm just thinking of various scenarios in, in church where you may see, you know, you may be, a, you know, just a general member in, in a ward and you may see how the bishop is doing this, this or that, or the way he's interviewing, you know, individuals preparing for a mission. And it seems really harsh or whatever. And so, but you think, well, it's not really my place, you know? So maybe I'll write an anonymous letter to the stake president or something like is. And so sometimes it's hard to gauge, should I intervene here? That's absolutely correct. And those are the same kind of questions we ask in any kind of setting, but obviously the church setting has some interesting aspects to it that we don't get in other settings. Mm -hmm. 
So I was talking about some of the questions yeah. we asked, right? The first one I asked was, are you the right person to intervene? A second question we might ask is, can you recruit help? Mm. So I think about this one. It's like, oh yeah, I went to my bishopric or the ward council. <laughs> and that may be, you may even try to intervene and you get re- sort of pushed back and then you think, okay, I think I might need some help here. Correct. I, I feel like I'm the right person to intervene, but I need some additional help. Right. And by the way, I agree fully. I mean, we've all been in those situations where we see things going on and we go, oh, you know, that wonderful Relief Society president or that wonderful bishop or young women's or young men's president, you know, they just, they haven't been in a position. I probably ought to help them somehow. I'm not sure how to help them. So yeah, yeah, it's a very common thing. Third question, do the urgency and potential impact require you to act now? Hmm. So there may be some things that you see where you say, oh, I've got to intervene now. And which for your scenario, they're going to build this building if I don't make some steps here. I mean, there's going to be a point in no return where that kitchen is built where it is. And that's that, right? There's no going back. Yeah. There are times where without getting specific, I've seen a church leader do something where I'd say, Oh no, no, no. And you know, I've been in the church building before where as a former Bishop, I see the Bishop and I like, I had this cup happen a couple of months ago. I was, I'm currently the other corn president. I was meeting with the Bishop as I was leaving the building the Relief Society president was coming in and no one else was in the building. Mm-hmm. So I, what did I do? He said, Hey, can I hang out for a minute? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I sat down, right? Yeah. Yeah. I sat down outside the, outside the, uh, the, the Bishop's office and he's a fairly new Bishop. And after he interviewed the Relief Society president, I said, Bishop, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You've got to make sure that somebody else is there. You just can't ever do that. And for his protection. For his protection. Everybody's protection. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's yeah. a rule and it's an important rule. And in this case, you know, I had to intervene. Yeah. He's a, he, and he's a wonderful, my current bishop is a wonderful bishop. And he's trying to do the right thing and meeting with the, our wonderful Relief Society president. But there are things in place that there are certain things where you can't really bend the rules. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's one where you yeah. really don't want to bend and the so rules. So you know, at that moment, you couldn't sit, say, well, I'll just bring it up in my next you know, interview next month. It's like, no, this is happening right now. I can intervene right now. Correct. As soon as, as soon as she left, I just went right in his office and said, Bishop, you've got to make sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah. So, and he has a wonderful executive secretary and I just said, you know, yeah. have a discussion with your secretary, executive secretary and just make sure that anytime you have an interview, either he or somebody else is there. Mm-hmm. The next one is, does your intervention plan require you to act unethically? So sometimes hmm. intervention actually requires you to do something untoward. I can't see a lot of situations in the church right. would, where that would be necessary, but there are times in the business world where actually you do have to use means that we would question, but sometimes the potential harm is so great that you actually have to. Yeah. I'm thinking means. of various movies where it's like the person, you see the, the ethical dilemma you know, in the script or whatever, and you think, oh, someone's got to do something, and then they do something that's illegal, and you know it's going to help, but you're like, oh, now this person might go to jail. Because of how they're intervening, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you're, you're watching them and you're, and you're cheering for them because even though they're doing something illegal, they're going to save a whole bunch of people or save an organization from doing this terrible thing that's going to create great harm to lots of people. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Does your intervention create a permanent solution or just a temporary fix? If you can create a permanent solution, that might give you more motivation to do it. If you think, mm-hmm. well, it's just going to create a, a temporary fix. Like maybe you see something going on and you think, oh, you know, that person's going to be released in three months anyway. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Just probably, roll with it. Right? Yeah. Probably not worth it. I don't like how he does the, the chili cook off, but that's right. You yeah, know. exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think he's hurting, you know, such and such a brother's feelings by the way he's doing it. Said, ah, but there's not going to be another chili cook-off where he's the bishop. So yeah. no reason and, to intervene. And I think people really struggle with that question because like back to your scenario, they may think, man, if I'm, if I'm always telling the bishop what to do, I may lose trust with, with him. And I just want him to trust me as elders quorum president and, and respect me. So uh, let's just hope this doesn't happen again. Right. And you leave, but, but nonetheless, it's a, it's something a question to ask. Right. Exactly. And it's, it's a question of the level of moral intensity. Yeah. Then uh, a few other questions. What are your own motives? Sometimes your motives not, may not be pure. Is the problem the result of one person's behavior or is there some kind of systematic failure? You would approach it differently depending on which of those it is. Does your intervention require just one active intervention or is it going to require sustained regular effort? And finally, how can you create the least harm for everyone involved? 
Awesome. Those are great and, and very helpful to just go through these. And, and again, it all goes back to that moral intensity that it's not like every, every dilemma you need to ask yourself these questions. But when, yeah, if you're losing sleep over something or, you know, that it may be worth going through this exercise of asking questions, right? I, as an ethics professor, have lots of conversations with people. Yeah. <laughs> Former students, members of my ward, you know, I have a lot of doctors in my ward and I find it interesting. So often someone will come up to them and say, you know, one of the members of my ward who's in our state presidency, he's a hand and elbow doctor. I swear it must be half the time I'm talking to him. Somebody's coming up, showing him a finger or a wrist or something. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So you just get in a different context, right? And for me, it's people come up and say, you know, I've got this challenge at work or, Uh you know, I've got this dilemma I'm dealing with. And so I look at these questions and uh, I go through these questions with folks. I just did it twice last week with a couple of my former executive MBAs and they find it to be very helpful to just kind of go systematically through those questions. I don't know how to say this in a humble way. (laughs) Go for it. I rarely do things humbly on this podcast. So (laughs) (laughs) the reception to the business ethics field guide has been way beyond my expectations. I've, as I said, been teaching for 30, 32 years. I've probably used somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 different books in my teaching over the years. Mm-hmm. And there are always a few complaints about the book from students. I've received none. That's great. And there are professors at BYU in the business school, engineering, law, or using this book every semester at the end of semester. You get any negative complaints, negative comments? Nope. There are about 12 different universities that are using the book. That's awesome. I asked them. Any negative complaints? No, I get these emails saying, you know, where they actually give me the student comments on the book that are just glowing. And it's like, so it's been really, really satisfying to yeah. see the book actually helping people. Yeah. And, and I imagine, I mean, a lot of people, when I interview like professors and they, you know, it seems like every professor has a book or two and you, and, but sometimes those books are very scholarly and for the classroom, but this is something that anybody can apply and use even in, in church settings, right? Yeah, we wrote it as as a, a book for managers. Yeah. And we said, well, I wrote it for two reasons. One, we thought managers needed the help. I was specifically thinking about my executive MBAs, which are essentially working mm-hmm. uh, managers. So working managers. I also wrote it secondarily as a book for my students because the books are so expensive. Yeah. I wanted to actually write a book so my students could have a much less expensive book. Mm-hmm. So it's been gratifying to see people in both camps yeah. sort of appreciate it. Well, let's jump into another one of these dilemmas because we, we spent some good time on the intervention one, which I think is so, I think people listening to this and hearing you articulate these principles and questions, they think, oh yeah, I deal with intervention dilemmas all the time. I just didn't realize it. Right. Or I'm, I just don't want to, you know, make, make any waves. So I just avoid those interventions where oh, maybe there's a process I can do to really, you know, apply these principles and, and see a difference. So what, what's another uh, of the 13 that we could dive into and, and maybe refer to some of these questions as well? So there's two more I'd like to quickly do. Let's do the one that's probably quicker. Okay. So this one, I'd like to actually do a role play with you. All right, I'm ready. All right. <laughs> so you've been a bishop, so you're bishop again. Okay. Here okay, Bishop Frankham. Yep. I'm the, uh, let's just say I'm the young women's president. Gotcha. Okay. So here's a scenario. I'm going to give you three different scenarios. Okay. Think of these as happening three weeks in a row. So the first week I come to you, the setup is, you know, that one of the couples in your ward, the man is spending a lot of time out of state. He's spending a lot of time out of state because his father is in serious legal trouble in another state. Okay. No one else knows this. Obviously, he doesn't want, obviously he doesn't want anyone else to know this. You know this. So I'm the young women's president. I come to you and say, Bishop, Marcy seems very sad these days. One of our laurels. It seems like her father's out of town a lot. Are her parents doing okay? Uh, this is where I freeze and, uh, pull the fire alarm and run. <laughs> um, so I would say, uh, you know, yeah, the things are fine. A good general answer. Things are fine. Okay, great. Did I, and how did I do? <laughs> great Bishop. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. Sure. Okay. Next week. Next week. Here we are. Now oh, we have no, another scenario. <laughs> scenario is that a couple in your ward is about to file for divorce. You know this. No one else knows this. This legitimately happened to me several times, but yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yep. I come to you and say, Bishop, Jane seems down these days. I've heard that her parents are having difficult times and are considering divorce. Is there any truth in this? 
Well, uh, man, these are really hard. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going through some stuff right now. It's kind of tough, but uh, just keep praying for her. <laughs> I probably revealed already too much, and this is really hard. How do I do? <laughs> okay, I, I fell. Did you see well, what no, I, I mean, it, this is this is really hard. I'm <laughs> not, this I'm, is real life. Yeah, though. exactly. Yeah. This is real life. These yeah. things happen. There are so many awkward situations where you know you've called someone to a to a calling, but they haven't you know been sustained yet. And someone comes. Oh, I know that brother so and so is going to be the new young men's president or something. Right, right. And yeah. you're just like in your mind going, yeah, that's true, but or you know it's not true. <laughs> And if you say it's not true, the next time they say, oh, well, then it must be Brother Brown. Yeah. And you're like in your mind going, well, that is true. Now, what am I going to say? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And or the I, I mean, I want to I'm thinking in my mind, like you think, well, this person's on the word council and maybe I can just, you know, make them aware a little bit of the situation. Right. And and I've been in those scenarios with other leaders where they're telling me information. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm a pretty trustworthy guy and I'm going to lock that. I call it my bishop vault. But I don't think he's supposed to be telling me that or she's supposed to be telling me that. Right. So hopefully I can be the end of passing that news on. But it's a really tricky situation. And I've uh, to be honest, I've had some difficult times in the church where somebody else in my ward council thought I overshared Mm -hmm. and said, you know, all that information is confidential. The thing about it, though, is if everything is confidential, then the bishop has to do everything. Yeah. That's not the system. Right. The system is we have to share the load. And of course, now we're at a situation where the church is trying to change the culture where the elders quorum president is supposed to do a lot yeah, of those things that the bishop there. used yeah. to do. And you want to, of course, I think on paper, you think, well, what I'm supposed to do is go to that person, get permission to share it. But what if they don't give permission? And again, it's on your your shoulders again. And so you really wrestle with these things. And some of these things are clearly confidential. Right. Yeah. Others you know, people are talking about them and you didn't even get the information from that person coming and telling you or something. Yeah. You just heard it in the hall like anybody else. And you thought, well, gosh, the young women's president should know about this or. Because there's this fine line where you don't know, like in a ward council setting, you feel like, oh, we're supposed to focus on people. Right. Right. And so then you talk about people's problems and then there's weeks where you sit back and think, I think we're just gossiping all together. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Are we really doing much when it seems more like gossip than a council meeting? Correct. Yeah. yeah. That's a really tricky line. Yeah. So third scenario. Okay. <laughs> Three strikes and I'm out here. <laughs> <laughs> so this time, you know that one of your brothers has just been diagnosed with cancer. Like one of my actual brothers. No, no. In the, in the ward. You're the bishop. Okay. Right? okay gotcha. You're still the bishop. Yeah. Okay. One of the brothers in the ward okay. has been diagnosed with cancer. Serious. He hasn't told his children. No one else knows. And uh, the, uh, I'm the young women's president again. Uh-huh. I come up to say, Bishop, you know, Amanda seems kind of sad. My counselor saw her dad coming out of the oncology office at uh, the hospital. Is he okay? Well, I will tell you when I can. (laughs) Which, again, is applying certain information, right? (laughs) So the reason I did the three scenarios in this order is because in the first scenario, you gave me the information. You Uh didn't give it to me fully. Right. But you gave me information. I gave you a little bit, just so you go away. Right, right. You gave me a little information, said everything's okay. Yeah. In the second and third dilemmas, you didn't tell me that. Uh Scenarios, you didn't tell me that. So I know that when things were okay, the bishop told me things were okay. Mm. Now when I come back to him and he says, I can't talk about it. What does that tell me? It's probably not okay. Probably tells me things are not okay. And And now all of a sudden I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe that they're having marital problems and maybe about to about to divorce, or I'm going to believe that my counselor was right and saw him coming out of the oncology. Or, or you'll, that person maybe even magnify it, right? Maybe this individual just has stage one cancer that's going to be taken care of, and suddenly that hey, so and so has four, stage four cancer. You know, like it, right? And yeah. the kids haven't even heard it from their dad or mom, yeah, right? And all of a sudden they hear it from a friend at school. I heard your dad's got stage four cancer. Yeah. So. There are times where in spite of the, you know, hymn number three that says, we'll love one another and never dissemble, uh-huh. but cease to do to evil and ever be one. 99% of church members don't know the meaning of the word dissemble. Yeah. I've, <laughs> when you wrote this in the outline, you sent me before I'm thinking, I've never thought about that word. To me, it's like dissemble, like, oh yeah, we're supposed to be unified, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's the way most people think about yeah. it because it's it's very similar to the word disassemble. Yes, right. Right? So yeah. we think we'll love one another and ever be one. Okay, well, that yeah. probably means 
but it doesn't mean that at all. Okay. So educate us. <laughs> so, and, and is what you described the dissembled dilemma? Or? It is. That's okay. the, yeah, that's the dissemblance dilemma. So dissemble. Yeah, I keep saying it wrong too, but. Yeah. <laughs> dissemble means to make something look different than it actually is. Oh, okay. To hide your true motives or intentions behind some false appearance. Mm. So it's the antonym to resemble. Resemble means to make something look like it actually is. Mm-hmm. Dissemble means to make it look like it's different than it actually yeah. is. And so to some degree, to help keep confidences, there are times you actually have to dissemble. Yeah. The person thinks they know something and you know that's absolutely correct, but that person's not supposed to know it. The only, if you don't dissemble, if you totally truthful, you just broke that confidence. Mm-hmm. So to some degree, you have to somehow make it look like it's not how they think. Yeah. And it's probably related a little bit to the term of gaslighting, right? That, uh, but that's like on the far edge of things. That's on you, the far edge. Where it, like that's extreme disassembly, that disem- right? Yeah. Like you're trying to, to muddy the water so much that they'll just move on and nothing to see here, right? But in these scenarios, like you described, like these are real everyday scenarios. Like these aren't outliers that you've described. And a lot of leaders, they don't know what to do with it. And so they think, well, I'm just going to get out of this conversation. Here's some information, go away. And as you can see how awkward I was that in a real situation, I'd probably be even more awkward, you know? And so, I don't, so where do we so, go here? So yeah, where do we go from there? What's, yeah. the, what's the advice? <laughs> well, the advice is to think about it before you're ever in any of these scenarios. Mm-hmm. Understanding that if you share very much, when you don't share, you're sending a signal. So you have to be careful not to overshare in situations where, again, you've got information that other people don't have. And you've got to be really careful about ever disclosing that information, mm-hmm. because if you disclose it when there's actually not a problem, then when you disclose or when you don't disclose when there actually is a problem, you're giving the other person yeah. an idea that, oh, I must be right. Yeah. Because now all of a sudden the bishop's not yeah. giving me that information. So really have to be very careful about information you give out when you know confidential information, when it's not negative. Yeah. And but when they catch it, it's, you, they catch you off guard like that. You know, you may just be walking out of the hospital or out of the, uh, the office and suddenly you're, you have the, you're in this conversation, right? And maybe I'm at a time. So is, are there certain questions we should consider with, with this dilemma? Well, the, first of all, in our classes, we do, thanks to my colleague, professor Jeff Thompson, we do what we call impromptu dilemmas. Okay. And we do it exactly as I just did it with you. Mm. where we don't give you a lot of time because a lot of times in those dilemmas, you don't have time to step back and think someone just came up to you and asked you something or said something to you. And so, you know, it's helpful. What we, the reason we do these impromptu dilemmas is to help people realize I've got to think about some of these things before I'm actually in the situation Mm -hmm. because I'll handle it a lot better if I've thought about it before I'm actually in the situation. Yeah. So the dissemblance ones. So one of the questions we might ask is, do you have authority to re- reveal the truth? And those, in these scenarios, I mean, I don't have authority or permission to. I mean, I, I have authority to receive that information. Right, but not to share it. Yeah, not to share it. Yeah. Correct. So. So, no, I should not share. <laughs> right. In any of the three scenarios. But yeah. it's tricky in that first one. Yeah. Because the first one, you know there's nothing wrong. And so you want to reassure the young women's president. But again, the tricky part about that is when you do say it sometimes, you're sending a signal when you don't share yeah. the next time. <laughs> Why do you want to misrepresent the truth? Sometimes there are good reasons, like you're yeah, trying I, to... I want to maintain confidentiality. Maintain confidentiality, or, right. Yeah. Would you tell the truth if the cost of truth-telling were lower? This one doesn't necessarily fit this particular dilemma, but in some of those, we have to think about, well, what is the cost of truth-telling? Are you dissembling to protect others who need to be protected? In this case, that's the exact reason you would dissemble. Yeah. Are you at fault for a misunderstanding or do you have an obligation to clarify? Sometimes we make false assumptions about things. Or so if that individual who saw their husband leaving town a lot, they've made an assumption there that maybe he's not, or maybe just works out of town a lot and they've jumped to some conclusions, right? Exactly. Yep. And then finally, is there a way to get what you need without dissembling? So there are situations unlike this one where, there's something you need to get done. And the only way you can think about it is to dissemble some way. Uh-huh. And this asks us, well, dissembling is not something we want to do routinely. <laughs> yeah. Right. As the, as the hymn says, we never want to do it. So if, but, so, but you're saying there are scenarios where you just can't get away from it and for the, the greater good and the gr- higher ethics, you have to dissemble a little bit. That's correct. Yeah. Cause I, I think back like, well, I should just say, 
you know what? I'm not at liberty to say anything on that. But again, I'm applying some things by saying that, or I'm indirectly confirming what they're saying. They'll make assumptions, right? And so yeah, I think <laughs> there's no perfect answer, right? Or five-step process, but just to be aware and think through these things, you know, as a bishop, and these are things that maybe a new bishop doesn't think about until he's in these scenarios, but as a bishop or at least side president, how are you going to handle it when, because you get this all the time, random member in the ward, you see, maybe you're out picking weeds in your front yard. Someone walks by and says, hey, hey, Bishop, I've been wondering, is everything okay with such and such family? Like, how how are you going to- and Their intentions those? are perfectly pure. Yeah, because, yeah, we, we want to, if there's something wrong, we want to help, right? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, so, really so there may be times, and this is a tricky thing, but there may, may be times where you say, yeah, really, I don't know anything about that. When in fact you do. Yeah. You know that that, that brother just was diagnosed with, you know, stage four cancer. But you're just afraid if you just say, well, I can't talk about that. You've just confirmed it. And you, you really want to make sure that that information does not get out before the children know about it. So you may very well say, yeah, yeah I don't know anything about that. Yeah. Right. And feels, that, and feels, technically that feels it's a hard, lie, right? Right. Yeah. That feels hard, right? Yeah. But that's where the Are you truthful of, in your deals with your fellow men? That's the old question. I can't right. remember the new one. But right. right yeah. <laughs> right. It's along the same lines, but sure. Yeah. Interesting. Well, uh, as we wrap up, any other dilemmas you want to tease us with that maybe people can go towards your book and, and untangle some of those dilemmas, but any others that you'll, that me, are more common in, in the leadership, church leadership scenarios? Let me just finish with one other one that I referred to earlier as the most difficult of 13 dilemmas, and that's the conflict of interest one. And I already talked about some mm -hmm. of the notions of, you know, if you're a salesperson and, you know, you, you're now in a church leadership position? Can you call on other people in the same way you would have done before? I like to tell this story for people so they can understand conflict of interest. People really struggle with it. And people will struggle with the story I'm telling right now. But it actually is pretty clear, this particular story. So there was a woman named Darlene Druyan who was head of acquisitions for the United States Air Force. So she spent billions and billions of our taxpayer dollars. She got to shop. Wow. Right. She bought helicopters and tanks and, you know, big planes and fighter jets. And well, one of the big suppliers, of course, is Boeing. She was negotiating a deal to buy helicopters from Boeing, about $4 billion worth. In during that time, her a daughter was about to get married and her about to be son-in-law was graduating in engineering from Purdue. and thought he'd love to go to work for Boeing. So what do we teach students at the university in terms of how you get a job? I can network. We network. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Network. Talk to your parents, talk to whoever, your neighbors, you know, network. Well, he talked to his mom, you know, about to be a mother-in-law who has a really strong connection. She actually negotiates directly with the chief financial officer of Boeing. So in one of their discussions about this $4 billion deal. She just says, oh, by the way, my son-in-law is about to graduate in engineering from Purdue. He'd like to work for Boeing. Can you do anything to help? <laughs> now, under most scenarios, that would be perfectly fine. Under this scenario, it's absolutely wrong mm -hmm. because now she's in a role where her role is to represent you and me, all U.S. taxpayers, in making sure that we get the best deal for our taxpayer dollar. And when she's in that position of trust, it's inappropriate to ask for personal favors. You say, well, that's not a big personal favor. I mean, he was a good graduate of one of the top engineering yeah. schools. Yeah, but there are certain situations where you just simply can't cross that line. Now, that was not illegal, but it certainly crossed the line of the spirit of conflict of interest. Well, he hired him. Hmm. He starts working, loves it. Six months later, they're now married. They're still negotiating the same helicopter deal is a true story. And the Darlene now says to Michael Sears, the CFO for Boeing, my son-in-law loves working for Boeing. They've moved to Chicago. Now my daughter needs a job. Is there a job for my daughter at Boeing? Michael Sears arranges it. Darlene Druyan's daughter is now working at Boeing. The helicopter deal gets the contract, gets signed, et cetera. Now they're moving on to a new deal, which is a... At the time, I believe it was $23 billion contract to lease 100 767s for 10 years as air refueling tankers. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's a, there's some paperwork involved, I'm sure. <laughs> Big price tag, right? A lot of yours and my money. Now, the daughter, who's now internal to the company, 
sends an email to Michael Sears saying, you know, mom's going to be retiring from the military this next year or from the civil service. And, you know, you don't make a lot of money in the civil service. So she's going to have about five years left in her career. So she'd really like to get a good job after she retires. And she loves Boeing. Well, Michael Sears then arranges to meet with Darlene Druyan to talk about her post-retirement employment at Boeing. Now we've crossed a legal line. Mm. You're not allowed to do that. Interesting. And they met at the Palm Beach private airport. Unfortunately for, for them, there was a member of the Justice Department who was at the airport and saw a private conversation going on between the CFO of Boeing and the head of acquisitions for the Air Force and said, that doesn't look good. And they looked into it. Both of those people spent multiple years in prison. Holy cow. Because wow. of that. Yeah. And it's like that seed, right? It just started. The seed was the very first one, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and again, my students sometimes struggle with that. It's like, well, wait a second. What's wrong with her saying, hey, why don't you look at my son-in-law? He's graduating from a top engineering school. Again, there are certain, I said, well, if she had been retired and she was no longer spending our billions of dollars and she knew him from that time, that'd be fine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because she, she no longer has any power over him. She's not. She's not the one spending our money anymore. If she's retired, yeah, sure. Have, have her call him up and say, you know, Michael, remember me? We used to negotiate. And like, yeah, well, I got this son a lot. That'd be fine. Yeah. But not when she's in that position. Mm. And so when you're a Relief Society president or a stake president or a bishop, you just have to be careful yeah. in how you deal with conflict of interest. And again, what I'm, what I'm learning from that is that it starts so innocently. And so, and I can think of several scenarios where, you know, individuals just happen to work at the same place or, you know, there's so many of these circumstances that, and to me, not that you can't, you have to like shut off everything, but you just have to be aware of, and maybe even point at and, and vocalize. There's a conflict of interest here. Correct. Is everybody in the room okay with moving forward or could this lead to places that isn't good? Right. Correct. So we talk about the solutions to conflict of interest. One of the solutions is that it's forbidden. There are certain situations where the Potential harm is so great. You simply, no, you cannot have that conflict of interest. Yeah. And that's the legal one where, you know, a government official who's an acquisitions person can't be talking to one of their suppliers while they're spending government dollars negotiating their post-retirement employment at that company. Mm -hmm. That's, that's clearly yeah. out of bounds. So sometimes we just say, no, the conflict of interest is too great. We forbid it. Other times we say, well, under certain circumstances, you just need you can be part of it, but then when we get to a decision point, you have to recuse yourself. You mm -hmm. can't actually be part of the actual decision. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes we say, we just disclose. We just need everybody to know yeah. that this conflict of interest exists. Yeah. So there may be a, a you know, a, a stake president at the office who's an executive. They're talking to somebody else in the office that for a promotion, that stake president need to tell his boss, hey, just so you know, like I, we go to the same church, they see me as a, as a leader. You need to be aware of that so that we can move forward and- with everything out in the open, in the air. Right? Exactly. Exactly right. Sunshine. Sunshine is a wonderful thing when right. it comes to ethics. Not always, right? Yeah. <laughs> but in general, sunshine is a great thing. And, you know, for example, the sales situation, maybe you're the stake president and, you know, one of the members of your stake is the, uh, you know, the head of purchasing for this big company and you would be the natural person to go there. But you might say, to, uh, you know, maybe it's one of the Relief Society presidents in your, in your stake who's in charge of purchasing. You may say to that person, I think we have a great product that would be really good for your company, but I'm not sure if it would be appropriate for me to call on you. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's somebody else in your organization yeah. that you would say, you know, why don't you yeah. talk to that person? Or maybe there's somebody in my organization that could call on the company instead of me. Yeah. And I think in, um, sometimes we think in the context of Utah where wards are so compressed that maybe it's easier to find, you know, other people and options, but I'm thinking like my, my in-laws are in, in Blackfoot, Idaho. My father-in-law is a potato farmer and all the time in ward or stake, he's like, oh yeah, there's Jerry. I, I buy my tractors from him and, you know, I buy seeds from that guy. Like it's the economy so intertwined that it's hard to avoid these things. And so again, it's just. Let's recognize them, disclose things, and, and move forward, forward from there. Right? Correct. One of the things we talk about in conflict of interest is the smaller the community, the more likely it is you're going to have conflicts yeah. of interest. Yeah. So I was on the ethics committee for USA Synchro for many years. Mm -hmm. That's the Olympic Committee for Synchronized Swimming. Mm -hmm. 
And I won't go into the full story, but as you might imagine, that's a fairly small community. And one of the things we had to do is we had to vet the potential judges who would choose our national Olympic team. And so we asked them, we sent them a conflict of interest form and asked them, you know, what kind of conflicts do you have? And I'll never forget the meeting. We're in the meeting and we're going through each individual one. We get to one particular individual potential judge. And there were four of us on the committee, two ethics professors, experts, and two uh, former Olympic synchronized swimmers. Mm. And one of them says, wait a second, she's got a conflict of interest. Her sister's one of the finalists. (laughs) And it wasn't on the form. Yeah. And we went to the very next one. And the other Olympic swimmer said, wait a second, she's the coach of one of the finalists. And she didn't write, there's a conflict of interest. So at that point, I said, okay, this meeting's over. We can't go any further. Yeah. We apparently need to educate these folks on what a conflict of interest is. Yeah. And so we rewrote the form and said, here, here are examples of conflict of interest. We sent it out again. And this time, guess what? Every one of the judges had a conflict of interest. Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. Because I'm sure that synchronized swimming community- It's a very small community. Yeah, I mean, I've never met a synchronized swimmer. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very small community. <laughs> yeah. So I volunteered to be a judge. I said, I have no conflicts of interest. Of course, I also have no expertise in, in, in synchronized <laughs> right. swimming. And that's sort of the, the tough part, right? Right. Yeah. So that's probably not a good choice. Yeah. So in that case, we just had to look and say, well, there are certain conflicts of interest that are so great that we're going to eliminate those, understanding that the rest are going to have conflicts of interest. Like one had been the coach of one of the finals when she was in third grade. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, you know, yeah. it's a conflict of interest, not a big conflict of interest. And we need the expertise. So everybody who has expertise has some level of conflict of interest. Yeah. So we just had to make sure we got rid of the the big conflicts yeah. of interest. And, and what I'm learning here is that it's not that like your stake needs a conflict of interest form or, but just having like a routine, like once a year, let's just have a 10 minute conversation with all the bishops about it or with the high counselor, you know, just bring it. Does everybody understand what conflict of interest is? Does anybody know how this could go really sour, you know, and just bringing it up somewhat often, right? Yeah, the first time I dealt significantly with conflict of interest when it was, was when I was hired as a consultant for the Oncology Nursing Society, which is headquartered in Pittsburgh. And the Oncology Nursing Society is a professional organization for oncology nurses, 35,000 members, $35 million a year budget. They have two for-profit entities and two not-for-profit entities. And without going into detail, that creates all kinds of conflicts of interest. And so they hired me to come and help them write a policy on mm. conflict of interest. And one of the things we ended up doing is saying at the beginning of every agenda for board meetings or, you know, executive meetings, you just simply say, having looked over the agenda, does anybody here have any conflicts of interest with anything on the agenda? Hmm. And then once a year, yeah, we do just very quick, you know, conflict of interest training, what it is and how we deal with it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, this has been really helpful. And again, we've probably touched on just three of the 13 in depth here, but, uh, if people want to find your field guide, where would you send them? They can either come to our, our own website, which is the business ethics field guide or merit leadership, which is the name of the company, or they can find the book on Amazon. Yeah. And we also have a um, audible version. Oh, nice. <laughs> so they could listen to it. And we also have an iBooks version. Nice. So are you the voice electronic you version? It? I am not. There are three of us who are authors of the book. Okay. So I'm the lead author. And then my colleague here at BYU, Aaron Miller, and then uh, Bill O'Rourke. Bill O'Rourke is this phenomenal executive who is a friend of mine in Pittsburgh. And he provides examples that he's had of all the 13 dilemmas from his career. He's a phenomenal guy. He was actually the first president of Alcoa, Russia, when Alcoa bought the Russian aluminum industry. He went over speaking da and yet. That's it. (laughs) And took over this billion-dollar operation. And uh, so he's had all kinds of these situations. And so he actually shares all these situations in every every one of our chapters. So he actually voiced, voiced the book. So the last question I have for you is, as you've had this lifelong study of ethics and uh, you know, created resources like this, what has the study of ethics done for you to help you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? You know, ethics has a lot of different ways we can think about it. One of the ways we think about it is uh, from an academic perspective, Aristotelian perspective, or from Aristotle. Aristotle said ethics is about excellence. It's about habit. It's about what we become. And so an LDS perspective on ethics, while it also looks at the philosophical approaches like trying to be fair or just, trying to create the greatest amount of good for everyone, trying to make sure that people's rights 
are upheld, while we also take those into account, I think we we take very much to a Aristotelian character perspective because we're trying to become like Christ. And so in thinking about these scenarios, I'm always thinking, how do I, what do I do every day to get better at these things so that I can always act in not, it's not always right and wrong. It's kind of trying to do the better. So if we think about good, better, best, sometimes I might do something that's good, but I could do something better. Or I could do something even better than that. My colleague Aaron Miller likes to think about ethics as like a, a table. You know, you wouldn't think of it, you know, if you make a table out of wood, you wouldn't say, is that a, a right table or a wrong table? You would say, is that a good table? Mm-hmm. And could it be better? And so really, as Elder Bednar talks about in his, I think it's a book, article, book, Becoming, mm-hmm. That's what we're trying to do. And the study of ethics is really about how do we become a better person? How do we become more like Christ? And that's what we're trying to do at BYU is help our students to become more like Christ in their behavior. That concludes my interview with Brad Agel. Sure do appreciate his time that he took to to walk me through some of these things. And as you can see, this is some difficult topics that we just at least need to talk about and especially bring up every once in a while in in meetings or in our own personal study and development is what is the role of ethics in our lives and what are these dilemmas that we face and how how well are we handling them? And I would encourage you to check out his book. Uh, We'll link to it in the show notes, but the the Business Ethics Field Guide. And really, uh, even if you don't read it cover to cover, it's a good resource book if you do run into an ethical dilemma to figure out which dilemma of the 13 it is and then what are some questions you could ask yourself to talk you through it and really make the best decision to avoid other problems in the future. And I hope that Brad uh, continues to uh, have an influence in the Leading Saints world. And, you know, we talked a bit after about him maybe writing some articles, doing some follow-up interviews. And he, he has this manuscript. He showed it to me. It's a complete manuscript, a book all about where he researched the calling of, of Bishop. And so I'm excited for that to get published. And we'll definitely have him back on the podcast when uh, that is ready to, to be distributed and read. But this is the type of research, especially from the scholarship perspective, that we that we need to have more of uh, in our leadership experience. And so I'm excited to have individuals like Brad Agle in the mission with us. And don't forget, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash LGBT to learn all the details about the upcoming LGBT Saints Virtual Summit. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And When the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.